The various opinions, beliefs, and viewpoints expressed by guests, contributors, and participants of the Behind the Warrior podcast are their own and are intended for informational purposes only. They do not necessarily reflect the opinions, beliefs, viewpoints, or policies of the EOD Warrior Foundation or its employees and volunteers. Welcome to Behind the Warrior, a podcast presented by the EOD Warrior Foundation. This series will focus on resources, interviews, and topics impacting EOD warriors, their families, and the military community at large. Hello, everyone. This is Maria Shabla, and welcome to Behind the Warrior podcast. Today, we have the pleasure of speaking with Rob Reynolds, former Canadian EOD operator, vice president and general manager of MedEng and Pacific Safety Products, and board member of the EOD Warrior Foundation. Welcome to the podcast, Rob. Thanks, Rayo. Welcome, everybody, and a good day. Awesome. Rob, you have worn so many hats in your EOD career while on active duty with the Canadian Army and still do today in your role with MedEng and Pacific Safety Products. We are excited for the opportunity to hear about all your different experiences and to hopefully get some tips that you learned along the way. But I always like to start from the beginning. Um, can you tell us about yourself? Where did you grow up and what was your childhood like? Sure, absolutely. Uh, I grew up in uh, in a city called uh, Ottawa. Ottawa is in the province of Ontario. Uh, Ottawa is also the national capital. We're we're about uh, an hour's north of the uh, the U.S. border um, in a small town called Ogdensburg, New York, where where you cross over. Uh, growing up in Ottawa, you know, like every good Canadian, uh, played hockey in the winter, played lacrosse in the summer, and uh, you know, really. You know, enjoyed the outdoors. Um, you know, I could always be found trying to get lost on a bike or in a boat fishing or just outside quite a bit. So uh, that was kind of my, my, my childhood. Uh, you know, went to public school, went to high school. And then, uh, you know, when the, the Army came along, then uh, that's when I started to uh, to broaden outside of, uh, of, of where I grew up in, uh, in, in the Ottawa area. Interesting. So what what led you to the Army? So what led me to military service? So that's kind of a, an interesting story. Um, you know, my immediate family, you know, none of my parents were in the military. My, my grandfather was in the Air Force. Um, my grandfather also passed away when I was quite young. So I knew very little about his military career. And uh, one day in high school, the local reserve unit, um, you know, showed up with a high school recruiting drive and they were in the foyer of our high school they had a display out there uh, they had some dummy landmines they had some survey equipment um, some rifles and and a bunch of other bits and pieces that uh, that combat engineers use and i found it quite interesting and i just got talking to the officer that was uh that, that was there for the uh, the display he uh, invited me to an information session at uh, at the unit so i went in for that and then I uh, started filling out the paperwork, and I signed myself up. And uh, so that's kind of how it, it all happened. And what was interesting is, uh, you know, as I mentioned, my, my parents didn't know much about the military. Um, they were <laughs> they were quite um, they were they were concerned on you know what I was signing myself up to and where I'd end up in life and all that good stuff. But uh, you know, the other flip side was, you know, my parents did say to me that it was the first time in my life. Uh, that I took an adult decision for myself, and uh, and you know it's definitely paid off. 
um, you know, I didn't start off in, in the EOD field. I joined a combat engineer unit. Uh, combat engineers, of course, uh, do mine warfare, booby traps, uh, explosives, demolitions. Uh, progressed to become an, ins- uh, an explosive instructor, and then I continued to specialize, and that's where I ended up getting my EOD qualification. So, you know, it started out with uh, with, with with one guy at uh, at my high school, and it turned into a full time career for me. Wow, that is so interesting, and so young in in high school. So, so were your friends signing up for the military too, or was that was it unusual for you to enlist like that? No, it was it was me by myself, all on my own. Like I said, I walked up to this display and asked a bunch of questions. Said, "Hey, this looks kind of neat," <laughs> and uh, you know, got a full twenty-two year career out of it. Wow. And uh, you know, I started as uh, as an enlisted member and you know worked my way up to uh, the rank of what we call master warrant officer, which is similar to a sergeant major's role. Mm-hmm. And from there, I had the opportunity to uh, commission to the rank of captain, and then. Uh, you know, and then spent the last couple of years uh, doing that. So, you know, I had, uh, I think I had a, a great career. I, I moved around quite a bit, did many, many different jobs, uh, a number of deployments, had a good balance of uh, field postings and taskings, a lot of school taskings as well, and then kind of finished it up with a desk job, uh, taking care of all the, uh, the EOD equipment requirements for, uh, Air Force, uh, Navy, and uh, and the Army. So, uh, working on on our, you know Canadian Forces wide programs, uh, trying to equip uh, trying to equip our, our UD forces. And what was interesting at the time, um, and I, I know we'll probably get into this, but uh, you know when you look at Bosnia, you look at uh, you know Cambodia, you look at a number of those deployments. A lot of it was munitions disposal and mine clearance and. You know, the Canadian military had uh, had let go of, um, you know, ID, um, sorry, IDD services for, for a number of time. And, and the requirement for, um, you know, those type of services in, in Canada when you're at home uh, was really the, uh, the responsibility of, of, of the policing agencies. So, you know, we, we kind of let that capability go to the wayside. And then, um, you know, when Afghanistan and, and Iraq kicked off, um, we were sending our troops into Afghanistan. We realized that, you know, that was a capability that we needed to build back up again. And, you know, being in the section I was in, I was working in, uh, in Army requirements at the time. And, uh, you know, when they looked at my, my qualifications and they looked at my background, it just, seem fitting that uh, that I take on the the UD equipment programs and working with you know doctrine and training how do we build that capability back up and and how do we you know build it into the, the you know the, the combat engineer regiment so that it does become a, a full-time tasking and we get dedicated trained uh, troops with 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 you know a, a good capability that that we could deploy on a moment's notice. And I think Afghanistan was a bit of a wake up call, uh, but it was very exciting times for me. And I thought it was, uh, it was a great opportunity for, for me to work within the, the, the UD community, uh, you know, understand what the, the uh, our allies are doing, uh, you know, all the NATO forces, a lot of work with the U S uh, with the, the UK, understanding what their capabilities look like, understanding, you know, what the, the, the equipment program. So, working a lot with industry to understand what, what equipment and capabilities were available. 
building up the capital program and then then delivering it. So you know, definitely exciting times. Um, a lot of it was longer term planning for the programs. A lot of it was uh, you know uh, you know urgent requirements uh, because here we were in Afghanistan with outdated equipment uh, or a lack of capability. So. Mm-hmm. Definitely exciting times, and, and I think it was a great way to cap off my career. Mm-hmm. And it also gave me the opportunity to uh, to work in an in, in industry, which is kind of how I ended up where, where I am now. Right, right. It's kind of like a lifelong career that started in the military. I just thought it was great leaving the military and, and taking, you know, all that I've learned and all that, uh, that I had served within the UD community and and continuing that, but uh, in a different role and in a different environment. And, you know, I, I still feel that, uh, you know, I'm giving back and, you know, and, and being very active within the, the EOD community and the EOD family as well. So you know, I think it's just a really good continuation as I move into the next stage of my life and the next career path. And I still get to do the same things that I was doing uh, before and engaging in the same organizations. Yeah, absolutely. Now, we had talked previously, and you had mentioned, I think, that um, you started as a combat controller, and so EOD was not your primary career field, and um, and that's different than EOD in the United States military. So I wondered if you could kind of talk to us a little bit about that, um, uh, maybe about some of the differences um, between the U.S. military EOD career field and, and the Canadian EOD field. Yeah, no, that'd be great. Um, you know, in Canada, um, EOD isn't a, a trade. So it, it, it doesn't become your primary trade as you go through your military career. Uh, it's, it's a specialty qualification. It's a specialty role, uh, that you, you achieve, um, as you go through. And, you know, I was a combat engineer and in combat engineers, you know, we had bridging, we had combat divers, we had, uh, you know, airborne troops, um, we had water purification, we had heavy equipment operators. So, you know, most combat engineers have, you know, a, a chance to, to specialize in one area of their trade or another. Um, you know, I, I had the good fortune of, uh, of, of going on the explosives route. As I mentioned, uh, you know, I spent a lot of time working at the School of Military Engineers in uh, the Mine Warfare and Demolition cell. Uh, and that led me to be an explosive instructor and then move on and, and, and take on my, my specialties and on the UD side as well. Um, it is a specialty in the Army. It's the combat engineers and the ammo technicians mm-hmm. that take on EOD uh, taskings. In the Navy, it's the clearance divers. In the Air Force, the, uh, the air weapons techs. And uh, in the past, it was a specialty qualification, uh, but at the same time, you know, you stayed in your role, whether it was, uh, you know, a combat engineer, a section member or whatnot. And, you know, in the last couple of years of my career, when we were really working on building up the the IEDD capability, we really looked at, uh, you know, the combat engineer regiments and how do we make, you know, EOD a full-time position within those regiments. So we created EOD troops and, and part of the, 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 the reason behind it was, you know, we wanted to show that there was a career progression path uh, within the, the EOD domain. Um, but EOD at the same time is, is, is so small in the Canadian military uh, that, uh, the, you know, there isn't a whole lot of opportunities for you to progress up the chain as well. So I think one of the benefits of, of the way that Canada has it set up 
you know, based on its size, is that you know you you can still progress through your career as a combat engineer, um, and you're not limited uh, by the small numbers of uh, of EUD troops and EUD positions and postings. So, you know that that kind of worked out for myself. Um, you know, I, I moved you know from different positions, uh, squadron sergeant major, and then uh, at one point I was uh, you know the the OC of a squadron. In, uh, in one of the, uh, the the regiments, but at the same time, you know, I, I, I was doing combat engineer tasks, but I was still, a, you know, a certified EOD uh, operator that, that could be called upon, you know, at a moment's notice. And then, you know, my last job within the military uh, really was working at Army headquarters. Um, you know, at first I, I got brought in as a combat engineer looking at, um, you know, combat engineer capabilities. And then when we saw that we needed a push on the UD side, uh, that's where uh, that, that, that's where I kind of kind of fell in. So that is so interesting. It, it, it isn't great. Um, yeah, you don't you don't sign up for EOD as your uh, as your career path. Uh, you sign up for it as a specialty. But I'm mm-hmm. really pleased with the work and proud of the work that we did at that time, just to give people who are interested in, in the UD uh, domain some kind of career path where they can actually do that. Uh, that tasking and, and, and do that position, you know, on a full-time basis with, within their careers. Mm-hmm. So I think, I, I think I've heard that in, in the U S military, that there's six to 7,000 active duty EOD techs serving at any given time. So I'm just kind of curious, you know, because you did mention that the career field is smaller um, in Canada, how many active duty techs do you think that are specializing EOD would be, um, active at, at well, one time? That, that, that's a good question. So, you know, there, there's a lot of people qualified EOD, but people that are actually working in an EOD role <clears throat> from an Army perspective, um, you know, we've, we've got a troop of approximately 40 people in one troop per regiment. So one CER, two CER, five RGC, four ESR, um, for ESR, which is our engineer support regiment, they have a, a squadron. So in the army, you probably have, um, you know, I'd say, you know, around 200, 250 people working within the, the, the EOD space mm-hmm. as their primary task. Um, the clearance divers, um, you know, we have two fleets, one on the East Coast, one on the West Coast. Um, you know, they do have EOD troops. I'm um, not too sure how many, but it, I'm, I know it's not a huge number that are actually dedicated to, uh, to IEDD roles. And then on the Air Force side, um, IEDD isn't a dedicated role. They, uh, you know, the air weapons techs have that as a secondary role and it gets pulled out when, when required. So, you know, very small numbers compared to what you just recited for the U.S. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's so interesting. Um, and I'm just curious on, on a personal level. You know, I know here in the United States that there's a lot of pride in the badge, in the crab. And, um, I was wondering if you could kind of, um, describe the Canadian EOD badge. Like, what does it look like? And can you explain the symbolism behind it? Yeah, <laughs> my pleasure. Um, you know, I, I, I do spend a lot of time Especially now that uh, that I'm working with MedEng and also doing work with the UD Warrior Foundation, I do spend a lot of time with the U.S. So 
you know, I see how everybody rallies around the crab. Mm-hmm. You know, it's one badge for all services. Um, you know, everybody stands behind what the badge symbolizes and what it means. So a little different in Canada. It is the same badge across all the different services. And, and I will say it's also the same badge, uh, the exact same badge in, in law enforcement as well. Uh, the badge is a little different. Um, you know, what the badge represents to me in the middle of the badge, you know, there's a bomb. Uh, with a fuse that comes out of it, and really that kind of symbolizes what it is we do, what our area of focus is. Uh, the bomb is surrounded by uh, a red wreath. Um, you know, the red uh, you know symbolizes the, the blood that has been shed, and the wreath is for those that have paid the ultimate sacrifice uh, within the profession. And then outside of the wreath, um, you know, you, you see kind of an explosive blast or, or um, you know, flames that uh, that come out each side of uh, each side of the badge. I think that's a reminder of the threat that we all face within the field. And then, of course, uh, Canada is a member of the Commonwealth, uh, topped off uh, at the top of the badge uh, with the Queen's crown, and and that's a reminder of the oath that we all took uh, in the service uh, of, the, of of the Queen as well. So. Bomb in the middle, uh, red wreath around it, uh, explosive blast on the outside, and then uh, topped off with uh, with the crown. Wow. Yeah, that sounds really um, beautiful. I love that symbolism, and uh, definitely we'll be posting uh, a picture of that so our listeners can can see that for themselves. Um, I'm just, I'm kind of curious because I know you mentioned that civilian law enforcement in, in Canada, they also have a role in um, explosive ordnance disposal. Can you tell us um, what that looks like, and and does the military EOD work with the civilian um, EOD? Yes, we do. So um, the the way it's set up in Canada, uh, anything that's munitions based, uh, we always call on the the military to come take care of. So you know somebody's clearing out, uh, you know, their grandparents' house after, you know, a grandparent passes away and they go down to the basement and they saw that grandpa had a, you know, a grenade from World War II that he kept in his basement. Uh, we'll get called out on those, uh, those type of tasks because it's all munitions-based. Right. Uh, if it's an IED threat um, in Canada, if it's on base, then the military will take care of it. If it's on a military facility and military base, We'll take care of it. If it's not on a military base and, and out in the local population, then it's a law enforcement responsibility. <clears throat> so our federal police is the RCMP, the Royal Canadian Mounted Police. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, they're quite active in the UD field. Uh, the, the provincial police also have uh, capability. Uh, and a lot of times they'll, uh, they'll, Put um, you know the uh, you know hazmat CBRN capabilities along with the uh, the bomb disposal side, and then there's also um, local municipal police forces that, that have capability as well. Um, a lot of the times when we do uh, conferences or professional development, um, you know we invite both military and law enforcement together uh, when we have military exercises. It's always good to bring the the, uh, the the local authorities into that mix so that you can see what um, you know what what type of capabilities, uh, what uh, equipment, how our role differs from theirs. And uh, but at the end of the day, you know when you're dealing with a device, you know your render safe procedures are your render safe procedures, and that's where we can all benefit. 
um, when I when I was working uh, on on the EOD requirements uh, within the Army, uh, a lot of times we'd uh, we'd be running trials on future capabilities and future equipment. And a long time, a lot of times we would partner with uh, either the well, most of the time the Royal Canadian Military Police uh, for for, uh, for sponsoring trials and, and understanding just so that you know more people get get a better bang for the buck and. And, you know, we, we do these in, uh, in, in, in lockstep with each other. So, you know, a lot of the trials that I did uh, had police involvement in it as well. Uh, we ran a couple of trials through, uh, through TISWIG, uh, CTTSO at the time. And a lot of those, uh, you know, we, we, we definitely make sure that law enforcement was involved as well. So, and so there's definitely a, a community and, and a presence and mm-hmm. definitely areas where we can learn from each other as well. I love that. Um, so I want to I want to talk a little bit about your your military career on active duty. Um, you served twenty two years in the Canadian Army as a combat engineer. You had mentioned, and you've deployed on a number of operational tours for demining, UXO clearance, and IED disposal activities to include deployments to Iraq and Kuwait after the first Gulf War a deployment to Bosnia with the multinational division headquarters, coordinating demining efforts, training and canine programs for indigenous forces, and a deployment to Afghanistan, leading a team of advanced senior EOD techs, where you traveled with the IEDD teams, providing training, acting as advisors, and delivering new technologies to the soldiers on the ground to help with the fight against IEDs. So through all that, you were very much involved with the war in the Middle East, um, and it must have had a very big impact on you personally and professionally. I just was wondering if you can tell us about some of your experiences during that conflict. Yeah, it'd be my pleasure. Um, you know, I think, uh, you know, deployments are all, always exciting. You see different things. You see different cultures. You see different people. Uh, you experience new environments. Uh, you see some of the hardships. And I think, you know, a, a lot of, my time overseas, um, you know, really kind of shaped a little bit about who I am, what's, what's important to me, understanding how other people live, understanding some of the, the, uh, the, the challenges and the struggles that they go through, but also looking at it to say, okay, what, what can we do as a, as a Canadian nation in order to support these people and the, these communities? So, um, all three deployments very different. Um, you know, my first deployment was right after the uh, the first Gulf War. Um, you know, we uh, we were right on the border, uh, working in both Iraq and Kuwait. Um, I was uh, I was a young sergeant at the time, um, and and the role I had was uh, was section commander. So basically, I'd, you know, we were a team of eight, traveling across uh, the desert, uh, along the border, and in the demilitarized zone. And we were doing a lot of construction tasks, but also uh, a lot of tasks on uh, on munitions disposal, UXO clearance, mine clearance, and you know, for me, it was a huge eye opener. It was my first deployment. Um, you know, I was still quite young. I wasn't married at the time, no kids, and it was just you know, I'm taking off on an adventure, and 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 it was really eye opening. Um, you know, we looked at it uh, as an opportunity that we we really didn't get. Uh, back in Canada in terms of what we were exposed to and the opportunities that we had uh, in order to put our trade in, in, into play. And I, I remember we used to look at it and we, we used to call it the world's largest training area. 
because every day you'd come across something new <clears throat> and you'd be able to put your trade to, uh, to, to use and, and, and figure it out and deal with it. I also remember, though, that uh, the learning curve uh, that we had in theater was, was huge as well. Um, you know, it, it, before that, you know, we, we had deployments to Cyprus. It was mainly peacekeeping duties. It wasn't necessarily within your trade. It was more monitoring the, the, the area. This was, you know, a, an opportunity for us to go. A lot of the construction tasks were, were up our alley. Um, but at the same time, the, the minefields were live, the munitions were live. And we really kind of had to look at, uh, you know, the training that we received. And at the time, I'd say, you know, that we, we had good training, but um, I, I think at that point, um, you know, we were, we were still a little immature on, on what was required in order to, to send people to do some of those, uh, those type tasks. And, and a lot of learning while we were in theater as to, um, you know, what we were facing. Um, you know, a lot of the munitions disposal training we had prior to departure was all circled around Canadian munitions. You know, this is a, you know, a Canadian grenade, a Canadian mortar, a 105 round. And when you get overseas, you, you see a lot of different things. Not everybody's using uh, Canadian munitions. <laughs> not, not a whole lot of people are. Uh, so we were exposed to a lot of um, uh, allied coalition munitions, a lot of U.S.-based munitions, um, uh, which you know the the coalition used against the Iraqis. But then also a lot of the Iraqi munitions that came from you know everywhere and anywhere. Uh, there was Russian munitions, there was Italian landmines, um, and, and the list goes on and on. There's you know Chinese uh, pieces of ordnance as well, and. You know, we we just weren't up to speed on those. So you know, a lot of picture taking with our uh, Polaroid cameras because you know, no, no <laughs> digital cameras like that. Love it. Back to the headquarters, a lot of research, back out, and uh, you know, it, it it was quite interesting how that uh, that that went. But you know, learned a lot about uh, you know the cultures, learned a lot about the people, learned a lot about that region, and brought a whole lot of lessons home. Um, you know, Bosnia was a little bit different as well. Uh, my role in Bosnia was mainly on the uh, the demining efforts, so um, you know, mine clearance. Uh, and I had the opportunity to work with um, you know our own militaries uh, that were were assisting. A lot of the work was training you know the indigenous forces. Uh, so you know the, the the Bosnian, whether a Serb, Croat, or, or uh, <clears throat> Um, you know, in, in the mining procedures, and we travel to all the different factions of Bosnia uh, to oversee the uh, the demining efforts. Uh, I had a summer tour. Uh, the summer tour is when the actual demining happens. The winter tours were when a lot of the training happened. So, you know, when I got there, it was kind of the end of the, the training series, and we were actually now starting to deploy out into the minefields and do the clearance operations. Uh, so that was definitely interesting. We spent a lot of time with uh, the NGOs uh, that were in country and the, the civilian companies that were there. Uh, of course, we were, you know, six months in, and then you, you move out and, and, a, and a new deployment comes in and takes your place. A lot of the civilian companies had been there for years and years, and they were a great source of information for us just because of their experience and their knowledge. So, you know, the whole aim 
that I saw on, on the Bosnian side was uh, a lot of populated areas in and around where these minefields were laid. And, you know, the piece that, I, you know, I always took back was, you know, the, the good we're doing here is we're clearing lands for people to go back and farm. We're clearing soccer fields so kids can get back out and play. We're doing mine awareness training for local authorities to avoid, you know, uh, you know, accidents within uh, within their towns and their cities. We had a big push with uh, with a lot of the schools, uh, educating children about uh, mine awareness and what the signs mean and and what what the mines look like. Um, and, and I had previous experience where, you know, I was, I was you know the, the Iraq Kuwait deployment. I remember seeing an Iraqi child throw a grenade in the the air and and hit it with a stick, almost like a baseball bat, and. You know, those are the kind of things that make you cringe, but, you know, a lot of it is just, you know, lack of awareness, lack of knowledge. And, you know, so, you know, Bosnia, we had the opportunity to spend a lot of time in uh, in those roles. And at the time, uh, my, my wife was pregnant with her second and my uh, my oldest son was two and a half years old. And, you know, we had, uh, you know, coloring books uh, around, you know, mind awareness, mind clearing. Um, you know, what to look for, the different signs. And I said, wow, what a difference. You know, back home, you know, I'm, I'm giving my son Spider-Man and, and SpongeBob coloring books. For these children, it's much different. We're using the coloring book as, as an educational piece to try and keep them safe and try and, you know, make them aware of the, the threats and the dangers that, that are out in their environments as well. So, you know, Bosnia, you know, that's kind of where that, uh, that, that kind of led me. Um, like I said, spent a lot of time understanding what was going on, and it was also my first introduction to uh, to using canines and uh, using dogs. And of course, I'm a dog lover. Um, I, I happen to have three of them myself as yeah. we speak. Uh, but understanding, you know, the capabilities that dogs bring and, and how to use dogs, um, you know, was, was definitely eye opening. And we used to do all the uh, quality control and quality assurance for the dog training programs. Uh, for the local forces. So, you know, spend a lot of time with the UK veterinarian unit, understanding the capability, um, you know, seeing how they train the dogs, what the dogs are capable of. And then heading down to the uh, the NATO base where we actually trained, um, you know, the indigenous forces and the local uh, forces and then seeing how that dog program went. So, you know, that, that was something new for me, which was definitely exciting and, you know, definitely kind of brought me to a place where, you know, understanding that, you know, in the future and, you know, later on in life, here I am doing, you know, EOD programs and equipment programs, but, you know, the solution always isn't uh, a new tool or a new piece of equipment or a new technology that gets put out there. You know, there's, there, there, there's other tools in our arsenal that, you know, all you need is a, is, is a couple of bowls of kibble a day and, and they can really help you out as well. So. I have to you know ask, that, uh, Rob, I have to ask, yeah. what, what kind of dogs were you guys training? Uh, for the most part, we were using uh, German Shepherds, Belgian Shepherds. Mm-hmm. Um, and a lot of that was the um, the level of experience and knowledge of the handlers that we were training. Um, you know, we, we, we spent a lot of time saying, you know, uh, you know, retrievers, Labradors, um, you know, the, you know, you can get a better uh, capability from those, but they're a lot more difficult to manage and train. And one of the analogies we used to use was, 
you know, if you're sending a dog on a, on a 10 meter, um, path and they need to stay straight because they're clearing a lane and you come across a bush, um, you know, a Labrador is smart enough to stop and say, I'm going to go around the bush. Uh, whereas a German shepherd would just go straight through it. So, you know, we, we, when we were matching the handlers with the dogs, we, we had better success handler and German shepherd than we did with uh, inexperienced handlers and, and a much more intelligent dog out there. So, um, you know, we, we had more success. We did have some Labradors that, uh, that we, that we were putting through the, the program and, uh, you know, we we had some successes on on that front as well, but for the most part, it was uh, German Shepherds. Interesting. And then, what what kind of dogs do you have? Uh, I've got a, a, a mix. Uh, I've got a, a German Shepherd a Bernese Mountain Dog mix. Mm-hmm. I've got a uh, a Bernadoodle. <laughs> <So, laughs> Love it. A Bernese Mountain Dog and Poodle mix, nice. and uh, the third one really isn't. My dog, it's uh, and my wife's dog, it's my son's dog. My son's in the the military as well. Mm-hmm. And when COVID hit, he decided to get a COVID puppy and brought it home. And then two weeks later, it was deployed with the military and basically on, on COVID response. And wow. we basically have a dog fence, but she's a, a, an Aussie doodle, so Australian shepherd and poodle. Oh, wow. I've heard that poodles are extremely intelligent. Well, we, uh, we we heard they don't lose their hair, so that's, <laughs> that's why we... That's uh, a benefit, we, too. We next, you know, we, we definitely love the Bernese, and we love the Australian Shepherd, uh, but if we could reduce the amount of vacuum time in the house, then that, that's <laughs> awesome. I totally understand. Um, yeah. yeah. And then I guess the, uh, the, the last deployment, which I didn't touch on, which was uh, Afghanistan... Um, you know, very, very different than my, uh, my, my last two, uh, tours. Um, you know, my, my previous two tours, it was kind of after the conflict, getting things back to normal, whereas Afghanistan was, was more of a combat mission. And, um, although I didn't deploy on a full tour with a battle group in, in, in an, in an IED position, uh, the two times that I did deploy was in support of, uh, the battle group and the teams that were out there. And it was going in and doing equipment audits, uh, bringing new capabilities, training. Uh, we got to ride with them outside the wire and, and, and see the environments that they looked, worked in. And, you know, that uh, really kind of uh, brought things home for me on, on how different Afghanistan was to, you know, Bosnia and, and, and you know, after the first Gulf War. I kind of looked at it, um, you know, th- there was a lot of hardship both, you know, for the locals, but also for the uh, the troops that were deployed. And I also got, you know, firsthand, you know, how important it is to have the right equipment at the right time in the right place, but also how harsh the environment was on the equipment that we, uh, that we deployed to them. And, you know, the, the, the amount of time they had available for maintenance, um, you know, what wasn't always there. Uh, so the role that I, you know, I, I had back in Canada, you know, I was working on engineering capabilities and, and EOD capabilities, but, you know, I, a lot of it was, you know, the support, the day-in, day-in support we had to provide to Afghanistan to keep those teams up and running. So, you know, being able to deploy with them for a number of weeks here and there was uh, was critical to, to helping me do the job, but also to, to, to kind of fight on their behalf back at the headquarters in Canada to make sure that, you know, they're properly equipped, uh, they get the support that they need, and, you know, really to... to 
to make sure that they know that, you know, there's a reach back uh, to the homeland and, and there's somebody there that can answer the phone and, and really kind of take care of their needs as they, as they arise. So, um, you know, I look at Afghanistan and you know, although it wasn't, uh, you know, the typical deployment that the UD teams had out uh, on, on the front lines, you know, I did get to, to, to spend a lot of time with them and understand what they were doing and, and, and the good work that they were doing in support of the battle group as well. So very, very, very interesting times on, on, on that front. And, you know, we, we were in Afghanistan for, for many, many years. And I think, you know, out of my last six years of my career, I'd probably say, you know, a good four years of those were directly related to, to supporting, you know, the troops that were deployed. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. And definitely gave you the background and the understanding to, you know, to be able to do the job that you're doing now with MedEng. Um, so I want to, yeah, so I want to kind of circle back to, you know, I, I appreciate you telling us about your, your three different deployments and how they seem to be so different. And I think that the things that kind of st- stuck out to me was the, the image of a, a child with a grenade and, and hitting it with a stick. And, and then also, you know, you had two young children at home and, you know, their coloring books were, were so different, you know, and I, so I, with that in mind, I, I want to ask, um, just because over the past couple of years, the importance of mental health has really come to the forefront um, in how we address health and, and well-being. But can you tell us how you were able to process your experiences while taking care of your own mental health on, on these deployments? Uh, for sure. You know, and I agree with you. Um, you know, for the first many, many years, we we as a military medical community didn't understand it and, you know, just kind of put a bandaid on it and, and push it aside. And I'm, I'm, I'm super happy to see that there's a lot of effort and a lot of programs now going into uh, understanding, you know, what, what the impacts are and, and creating programs and a lot of things that we do with the uh, UD Warrior Foundation to, to support all that. Uh, from a MedEng perspective, we're actually working on a U.S. program right now on a blast sensor that uh, that actually records exposure for traumatic brain injury, which also impacts mental health. So, you know, I'm really happy to see that, you know, people are taking this serious now and, and putting a lot of time and effort and, and investments into to understanding it. But at the same time, you know, there's a lot of people out there that need help and there's a lot of people that, that have been broken from their experiences and, you know, we, we really need to be looking at it and trying to understand and trying to help these people. Uh, from my own personal experience, um, I think I'm one of the fortunate ones that um, that has found a way and knows how to deal with, uh, you know, with, with adversity and, and when things go bad, kind of put things in, in perspective. Um, I'm also dyslexic and, you know, a lot of the... the uh, the specialists that I've seen throughout my, my childhood and whatnot say, you know, dyslexics look at things a little differently and are able to, to analyze and put things together a little bit differently. And I don't know if that helps or not, but you know, kind of when I break it down, um, I, I believe I'm a realist. Um, I think I have the ability to assess situations, uh, look at what my role was in those situations. Um, you know, ask myself, did I do everything possible to um, support, uh, to aid, um, you know, to de-risk, 
And uh, I also asked myself, could I have changed the outcome? And, and, you know, most of the times when I ask those questions and I look at it, you know, I take pride in the fact that, you know, I did everything in my power to try and help and try and aid. I did everything that, uh, that I possibly could. And, you know, if I could have changed the outcome, I, I probably would have. But if I couldn't have changed the outcome, then at the end of the day, um, you know, what happened is, is definitely sad. Um, but at the same time, you know, I, I, like I said, I, I, I analyzed my role in it. And if, if I could look back and say, you know, I, I did everything I could, I couldn't have changed the outcome. And then I could be at peace with, uh, with, with, with whatever that situation was. And, um, you know, I've, I've, I've had a number of situations in my life, uh, both military, uh, as, uh, you know, as a, you know, family, um, you know, I lost my sister a number of years ago to cancer. Uh, we just lost a really good friend, uh, within MedEng, cancer just, you know, a, a week and a half ago. And you kind of look at it and you say, you know, um, could I have changed the outcome? And the answer was no. Did I support uh, 100% uh, supported throughout? Did I do everything to try and, you know, help that person, support that person? And at the end of the day, you know, the, the outcome is what it is. And, um, you know, sad for sure. Uh, but I can I can make peace with it. So and I think, like I said, being a realist, a realist assessing the situation, understanding my role, and understanding whether I did what I could, and uh, and you know, at, at, at a certain point, when you look at you know medical issues, um, you know, there's only so much you could do, and at some point, um, you know, it, it's just out of your hands, right? So, mm-hmm. so I think that's kind of how I deal with it. Uh, you know, sometimes uh, you know you, you talk about it when you need to talk about it. Um, sometimes you, you keep it in your back pocket cause you don't need to talk about it. Um, I think, you know, when, when required, you know, you always have that one friend out there that you can always pick up a phone and say, Hey, remember that day when, and, uh, and, and you support each other through the, uh, through the discussion as well. So, yeah, I love that. And, you know, peer to peer mentoring is so important in, in the EOD community and, uh, I think your your experience is, is very relatable probably to a lot of people. So thank you for sharing that with us. Um, so you are now the general manager of MedEng and Pacific Safety Products, your second hat in the in the world of EOD. Um, what is a day in the life of this role, and in what ways is it, is it the same and different from your active duty service? Well, first and foremost, when I retired from the army, I, I, I had to go on a shopping spree and fill my uh, fill my closet, and so that's definitely a difference because uh, you know I, I, <laughs> I didn't necessarily have the clothes in order right. to, uh, to, to, to do the yeah. and I actually had to think in the morning about what I'd wear versus you know <laughs> being told what to wear every day. But um, but you know what what I found really neat was, you know, when I left the military and joined uh, MedEng, uh, it was Alan Vanguard at the time, but uh, when I joined MedEng, uh, we, we, we still kept MedEng as the name of that, the UD product group. I joined in a job that was called product line director. So um, running the products, the future capabilities. So what I found was it was, it was very, very similar to my last job in the military. Um, the last job in the military, I was looking at capability development. I was looking at future requirements. Um, you know, what are the equipment programs? 
And in that role with MedEng, I was doing the same. I was looking at the products that we had. I was looking at future customer requirements. I was feeding our, our engineering team and our R&D team on, on where we need to go, product improvements. So really, I, I was kind of like the requirements officer for the company. So definitely a, a, a very similar role, uh, but a very, very different environment. Um, you know, one environment, you know, you're with your battle buddies and, uh, you know, and, and you're in the military environment. Then the next, you know, you're working with a lot of civilians that might not have experienced and lived the same things that you have. Uh, definitely don't understand all the acronyms that you put out on a daily <laughs> basis. Um, and, you know, working with engineering teams uh, that, uh, that come from different backgrounds as well and, you know, have different education levels too, so... I think the adjustment there was uh, more to the environment, less to the role. Uh, as I got promoted up the line, <clears throat> you know, I became vice president of the, the EUD group. Uh, from there, you know, I, I needed to broaden my horizons and I needed to, to continue learning. So, you know, more on the business side, how to operate a business, on, on the financial side, uh, you know, really looking at uh, the profitability of the company and, you know, what we need to do, looking at the programs, uh, you know, forecasting, you know, what military is where in their bomb suit life cycle. And if the suit, you know, has a life cycle of approximately seven years, you know, who's going to be up next and how and, 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 and working that side of it. So, you know, I think it was, it was a good progression for me, but definitely out of my element because in a lot of those things you, you, you definitely don't learn in the military. So, you know, I think it, it just gave me another platform to, to, to expand my, my horizons and, and, and learn, um, you know, but at the same time, you know, it, it's on-the-job learning. So, so I think, you know, that was kind of the next step. And then uh, the UD group, um, well, actually two groups, the UD group and what we have uh, called Crew Survivability, which is another branch of MedEng, uh, does uh, blast attenuation seats for combat vehicles, uh, micro-cooling systems for electronics and people. Uh, those two business units uh, got purchased by a company called Safariland. Safariland is a U.S.-based company. Um, they do body armor. They do pistol holsters. They do batons, um, you know, handcuffs, you know, anything that a police officer requires in order to, to do their role. So at the time, it was, it was, it was, it was a great move. Safariland's been a great company. It's been great to be owned by another product company again. But at that time, um, you know, they, they bought those two business units. And because we were pulled out of Allen Vanguard, um, you know, they needed a leader for, for that piece of the business, the Canadian piece of the business. So uh, that's when I got promoted to uh, general manager, VP general manager. And at that point, I was responsible for, you know, all aspects of the business. So understanding operations, production, human resources, uh, and in today's day, um, you know, how does it differ from my military career? You know, I probably spend, uh, you know, 60 to 70% of my week on, on, uh, human, uh, human resources, uh, recruiting, um, you know, compensation and those kind of things. It's very, very different than my military career. But, uh, but at the same time, you know, I, I'm still tied to the UD community. I'm still tied to life-saving products. You know, the Safari Land motto, is together we save lives. So all the businesses that uh, that they bought all have one thing in common. We'll, you know, the products that we, we put out to the marketplace, 
um, you know, are aimed to, to, to saving lives when, when people need to use them uh, when they're when they're up against a threat. So there's definitely a, a you know a, a good landing place for us, and uh, they've been completely amazing uh, with the support that they've given me. And you know, a couple of years later, they bought a company called Pacific Safety Products, which uh, which is a body armor company. And they're the market leaders for body armor in uh, in Canada. Um, you know, they've got uh, contracts with the Canadian military. Uh, you know, most of the police uh, departments across Canada. And at that point, Fireland uh, asked me to take on uh, managing that company as well. So, uh, definitely the same motto: together we save lives. Um, so it kind of worked out. And right now, I'm I'm managing basically all the Canadian operations uh, on behalf of Safariland. And, um, you know, it, it, it's just been a great opportunity. It's allowed me to, to move out of the military and everything that I've learned there and, and stay within the same domain, but grow even more and, and understand, you know, what, what I'm, I'm, I'm capable of and, 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 and where the, the next stop is. So I think it's just been a great opportunity. And like I said, you know, that the piece that, that really sticks home to me is I didn't leave the military and, and go, to a civilian company that does something that I'm, I'm, I'm just completely not aware of. Um, you know, the legacy that I brought from the military, the products, the people that we support, uh, that's been one constant in my life since the beginning. And I'm just very proud that uh, even though I'm out of the military, I can continue to serve the, uh, the UD community. Yeah, it, it seems like it was such a, a natural transition for you. And um, over the past year, one thing I have learned about EOD Techs is that they seem to be highly motivated by helping others and self-sacrifice. So I think, you know, together we save lives just is a perfect example of that. Um, and, and the impact that you're making in, in that role. Um, so in 2019, you were appointed to the EOD Warrior Foundation Board of Directors, and you currently sit on the grant committee and the nominating governance committee. How did you initially get involved with the EOD Warrior Foundation? And um, are you the only non-U.S. citizen on the board? And, and what is that dynamic like? Yeah, so, um, you know, in my role with MedEng, um, you know, we're an international company. Uh, the, the U.S. is, uh, of course, our, our biggest company, our biggest customer worldwide. Um, so I've spent a lot of time with the U.S. military and, uh, through different uh, engagements uh, and different uh, opportunities, I got to know the UD Warrior Foundation. I got to know Ken Falk and, and Nicole and, you know, great people and, and really kind of bought into the mission and the good work that, uh, that the foundation does uh, for the community. And, you know, MedEng is a huge supporter of the UD Warrior Foundation. We have been for years and years, even before the foundation got together when, when it was in its previous, before the two uh, merged together, you know, we, we supported back then as well. So a lot of it was just continuing support and then, you know, going to the events, going to the Memorial Weekend and really understanding and, 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 and taking it all in. Uh, so that really kind of led me to, you know, from a MedEng perspective, when we look at philanthropy, you know, where do we want to be spending our money and what do we want to be supporting? And we looked at it and said, you know, there, there is local communities that, you know, Snowsuit Foundation, Children's Hospital, the Heart Foundation and all those. But, you know, from a, from a bomb suit and an EOD company, 
you know, who are the people that we really want to support? And those are the people that are near and dear to us, which is the UD community, which is why we said, okay, we're going to look at UD Warrior Foundation. We're going to look at uh, uh, the US uh, Bomb Tech Fund. We're going to look at, uh, you know, those kind of organizations. And that's where we're going to focus. Uh, so we really got involved on that front, um, you know, sponsoring events, uh, not just sponsoring events, but also just helping out at events and, and being a participant and active. And lo and behold, one day, um, you know, Ken picks up the phone and calls me and says, uh, hey, Rob, we're looking for a couple of positions on the board. <coughs> Had a discussion with Nicole. We think you'd be a, a great addition. Would you be interested? And to me, I, I was completely blown away. Oh, um, wow. One that, that they, they approached me and then, Two, that they approached a Canadian to be uh, a member of, of, of this U.S.-based organization. Mm-hmm. Uh, so completely honored and privileged uh, for me to be able to serve, you know, the UD Warrior Foundation the, and the UD uh, community at large. And, you know, to be honest, since, since day one back in 2019, I've, I've, I love being a, a part of it and, and, and the work that we do and, and it's been eye-opening too, because you know, you, on the grants committee, you, you know, you see the people out there struggling, and it really brings home, you know, the, the type of work that we do and the support that we give, and 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 it just makes everything so real that you know there are people struggling, and they need to uh, organizations like ourselves in order to help them along their way and 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 their path to to to, to getting better. So. You know, it really kind of started with, with Ken and Nicole, and, and it's something that, you know, I've, I've grown into, I think. And I also look at it going, okay, what do I bring to the foundation? Um, you know, I do bring a, a long history within the UD field, both from a military perspective, but also from a, an industry perspective. And really kind of looking at the role that I play with MedEng and, and you know, what I've been able to do there, I, I think it also helps me work with the foundation on long-term planning strategy, uh, you know, support programs and, 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 you know, some of our goals and objectives. So, you know, it, it, like I said, it, it's, it's in my honor and my privilege and it's really, you know, allowed me to, to continue, you know, my passion for the UD family and, and continue to support uh, in, in, in other areas other than just, um, you know, providing equipment to uh, to to the teams that are out uh, out in the field. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so, in the beginning of the interview, I had mentioned that you wore a lot of hats um, in the EOD career field, and and I and I think that is kind of an understatement. Um, now, with all this experience in the EOD career field under your belt, can you tell our listeners what do you wish you knew thirty years ago? Um. <laughs> So what what would I have wanted to know 30 years ago? Um, trust your paths, uh, trust your competencies, trust your capabilities. I I never really had a career goal per se. Like I, you know, I I I I got a high school diploma just because you know that that was the thing to do, and you know parents pushed you to to get through, but. I didn't go to university. I didn't go to college just because I, I didn't know what I wanted to do when I grow up. And, and I still joke now that I still don't know what I want to do when I grow up because I'm just having so much fun doing the things that I do. But, you know, for, for somebody who came out of high school, no university, um, 
I, w- I was a ski instructor as well, so I was a ski bum. <laughs> uh, I got uh, interested in the Armed Forces Reserve uh, based on them showing up in my house, high school. And, you know, from there, you know, things just happened and, and doors opened. And I think there's a lot to be said about being in the right place at the right time. But at the same time, you know, take on every challenge and, and do it to the best of your ability. You know, I, 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 I tell my children all the time, um, you know, don't tell people how good you are. Show them. You know, show them, do your best. You know, get out there, take every task at hand and, and do it to its fullest. And if you do that, you know, doors will open and, and you'll move on. And I, I, I never in a million years thought that, you know, 30 years later, I'd be running two companies, uh, one international. We've got customers in over 120 countries worldwide. You know, we're the leading manufacturer of, of bomb suits in the world. You know, if somebody would have told me that 25 years ago, I would have laughed in their face. But <laughs> I, I think every experience in life takes you to the next. And, you know, you, you put the effort in and, and, and doors will open and you'll get where you need to be. And, you know, I, I reflect back on on, you know, the, the, the experiences I've had. Uh, I always believe in people and I believe in teams. And, you know, I've, I've been in the worst job with the best people and I've been in the best job with the worst people. And I, I, I'm, I'm sure you could appreciate which one I, I appreciated the most. <laughs> but at the same time, you know, you rally together and you push through it. And, you know, often doors would open in my career and, you know, I'd, I'd question myself and say, can I really do that? Um, you know, I've never done that before. Um, but each time I succeeded and, you know, so take those chances, take those opportunities and, you know, as the door opens, you know, go in full force, give it your 110% and, you know, you'll be pleasantly surprised in the outcome. I love that. I love that. And I love that. Don't tell people how good you are. Show them. I, I really appreciate that. Um, so thank you so much for your time, Rob, and, and all the amazing work you're doing for the EOD community around the world. Um, and in, in line with our tradition here at Behind the Warrior, we're going to end this interview with a couple of questions about your favorite things. Um, what is your favorite okay. hobby? Uh, my favorite hobby. So, <clears throat> you know, I did mention a few minutes ago that I used to be, um, a, uh, a ski instructor way back in the day. Um, I, I live at a ski hill uh, in the winter time. I, I downhill ski as much as I can. Um, my oldest, my youngest son is in the military. My oldest son um, is still ski racing. He lives out in Western Canada, kind of semi-professional. Oh, wow. And we do a lot of volunteering and, and we support, you know, the, the race circuit, um, you know, the NORAM Cup, the World Cup uh, events that come to Canada as well. So, you know, I definitely think, you know, wintertime, it's uh, downhill skiing. And then in the summertime, you know, the, uh, the, the hills here transform into mountain bike trails. And, uh, you know, I'm, I'm part of the committee that, uh, that builds the trails, maintains the trails, administers. It's all volunteer-based. And, you know, I, I, I get to pedal a little bit as well and try and keep myself in shape as, as much as I can. So... I'd, I'd probably say that those are uh, kind of my, my seasonal hobbies. Very nice. Um, now, one of my favorite recording artists is from Canada, Alanis Morissette. <laughs> so I wanted to ask you, what type of music do you listen to, and do you have a favorite singer, band, or song? So 
I I like all kinds of music, and um, you know I get criticized when I put a playlist on because it bounces around from uh, from classic rock to country to you know whatever that might be eighties nineties. Um, so you know I, I I diversify my my taste in music, and 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 I'm open and and enjoy a lot of them. As a good Canadian and and understanding. Um, what Gord Downey did for the Canadian population and how he supported, uh, you know, across Canada and, and how he kind of looked at it. I'd probably say the Tragically Hip uh, would be kind of my number one, not just because of their music, but also what they stood for and, uh, and, and, and what they did in terms of a Canadian band and, and really kind of representing Canada. And, you know, their songs and, and, and their reputation, you know, grew worldwide and, uh, you know, really kind of proud that they were able to bring a lot of those stories to the world. And and what was the band name? The Tragically Hip. The Tragically Hip. Okay, awesome. We're going to have to listen yeah. to that. Um, and I, I have to ask you, because I, I had asked Eris what his favorite type of food was and was surprised by his answer. So what is your favorite food? So, you know, I, I guess I'm a little bit more boring than Eris, but... Uh, <laughs> You know, I, the family I grew up with, and then you know, transitioning into the military, uh, I was I was really a meat and potatoes kind of guy, and um, not too much on the sweet side. But I will say one thing: um, you know, two years ago, I got myself a, a ceramic barbecue, like one of those egg things, mm-hmm. and uh, you know, cooking a, a two-inch thick tomahawk steak on that barbecue. To me, it's heaven. <laughs> Yum. That sounds great. Um, okay, so the last question I'm going to end this with is, what motivates you and do you have a favorite quote? So, <clears throat> what motivates me? Um, I think people motivate me. Um, I think if you take a look at the world, behind everything and anything, there's always people. Uh, I look at MedEng, I look at MedEng's reputation, I look at the business, and I look at the products we put forward. It's not our reputation and the products that made the business, it's the people behind it that made those products. It's the people behind it that rallied together to say, hey, we want a better life-saving bomb suit, we want a more capable bomb suit, we want lighter materials in order to make it, you know, uh, more ergonomic for the, the operators. And, you know, behind everything, it, it, it comes down to people. And, you know, I, I think the way that you treat people, I think the way that you motivate people, I think the way that you understand people uh, is extremely important. So, you know, to me, motivating, um, you know, I, I talk about how I can bring people together, how I can create a team, how we can succeed and how we move forward. And whether that's, you know, in business, whether that's your family life, whether that's your your friendships, whether that's volunteer committees that, uh, that you happen on, at the end of the day, behind everything that happens, it comes down to people. People create products, people create capabilities, people create events. Um, you know, I think if you create a positive environment, then you motivate people to get on board and, and you get great success. Um, I think a lot of that also stems from understanding people and, you know, not every round peg fits in a square hole either. And if you understand what made each 
person tick and you can adjust your, your leadership style or you can adjust your approach with them to, to, to work with what, what their expectations are. I think that, that, that's, that, that's a key piece that, that you need. So I think what motivates me, you know, is, is, is the, the teams and the environments that you create in order to accomplish goals. Oh, I love it. And that's so true. As far as a favorite quote, um, really don't have one. Um, <laughs> you mentioned one earlier. Uh, I think that's one of my, my good ones. Uh, you, know, you know, show what you know versus uh, telling people what you know. I think that's... Uh, what you know. You know. And, you know, the, one of the lessons I learned in the military, you know, on my first leadership uh, course was, you know, leadership by example. Um, you know, I, you know, one of the stories that I tell about my first deployment to, uh, to Iraq Kuwait was, you know, I was a young section commander and none of us had been in a live minefield before and none of us dealt with live explosive threats. And, uh, you know, the, the first time we came upon, you know, uh, you know, one of those, those areas that needed to be cleared, you know, I, I, I went in first and, <clears throat> you know, it was, it was the first week of the deployment and, I wanted to show that I'm, you know, I, I wasn't willing to put those people in a situation I wasn't willing to put myself in as well. And I think leadership by example, whether it's military, whether it's civilian life, whether it's friends, family, uh, whether it's, you know, my, my children, you know, show them the right way and, and hopefully they'll emulate it. Thank you so much, um, Rob, again, for, for taking the time to talk to us and, and tell us uh, about your different uh, roles in the EOD community and and just everything that you're doing to make a difference in the world. We appreciate it so much. So uh, honored to have you on the board working working with us here at the EOD Warrior Foundation. So thank you so much. Thanks, Mary. I really appreciate your time as well and, and all the work that you do in support of the foundation. Uh, it's a great organization and really appreciate the time that the, uh, the, the foundation wanted to spend some time with me and learn a little bit more about my background and and what, uh, what what we do up here north of the border, and uh, you know, really appreciate the time, and you know, also appreciate the camaraderie and, and the friendship with uh, with our neighbors to the south. Yes, absolutely, absolutely. Thanks again. Thank you for listening to our Behind the Warrior podcast. This series is provided to you by the EOD Warrior Foundation. To learn more, please visit us on Facebook or at eodwarriorfoundation.org. and don't forget to tell a friend.